0: What an honor to be here today. We are in the fourth week of our series on the parables of Jesus. And uh, over the last three weeks, we've been discussing the parables of Jesus. And And one main thing that we have, uh, have determined as we've discussed them is that Jesus used parables in order to separate the casual observers from the... Devoted followers Jesus told parables In order to to see Who really wanted to know The secrets of the kingdom That he was talking about And Jesus uh, always spoke In ways that people could understand And he used As we talked about a couple of weeks ago The mustard seed He used a very common uh, thing In order to illustrate The power of the kingdom of God um, That starts small Grows big And provides for many thank you ron and then uh we we spoke last week on the treasure hidden in the field and we discussed how jesus purchased you as his treasure so that you could seek him in his kingdom as your treasure this week we're going to talk about the parable of the lost sheep you know at the beginning of april this year i headed on a trip to fort collins colorado anybody ever been there it's a nice place and uh, I went there to be a part of an advisory board meeting uh, that I uh, am a part of with Antioch Community Church in Fort Collins. Let's hear it for them today. Come on, let's hear it for them. They can hear us. Oh, well, all right. They uh, listen to us. Fort Collins, we love you. Anyway, I was on this uh, trip, and uh, I went to Boston Logan in the morning, and I went to uh, the restroom, and then I went very quickly, to uh, the restaurant and got a little something to eat. And then I ended up going to my gate. And by the time I got to my gate, I realized something. I didn't know where my phone was. Yes, I did not know. And I was uh, sore afraid at that moment because I realized, uh-oh, it's not with me. I looked in my bag, couldn't find it. And then I began looking all over um, all over that area of, um, of Logan Airport. I went into the restroom. You know, I'm searching. I, You know, I, it wasn't in the toilet. It wasn't anywhere else. I, you know, it wasn't in the trash that I could see. I wasn't going to dig in there. I looked all over. Then I went next door to the restaurant. I asked. And I sought out every person I could find that looked like they had something to do with Logan Airport, asking them, where's the lost and found? Did anybody find a phone, uh, an iPhone? That's what mine is. And uh, got to know. And I had this sinking feeling. I don't know if you've ever had a a sinking feeling like, ouch, that thing costs a lot of money and I need to find it. Well, anyway, um, I ended up going to the gate, back to the gate, and asking the gate agent, hey, could you hold up a minute? Uh, I'm going to keep trying because I know once I go, um, it's going to be tough. So I went again and. and, I I didn't hold up the plane, but I got to the very last minute and I ended up on the plane. And I flew on to Fort Collins. I got to Fort Collins and I kicked up on my computer, find your iPhone, right? So I kicked it up and I began to, I looked at it occasionally, maybe a lot. I'm a little bit OCD about these things. If you just ask my wife, I was checking and somehow it has this satellite image that can find out exactly where my iPhone was, but it was turned off. So I couldn't find it. Anyway, um, you know, uh, my phone, interestingly interestingly enough, my phone during that season of time uh, seemed more important to me than it had in the morning when I left. It was on my mind. I was thinking about it. I was wondering about it. I was wanting it. And why was it? It wasn't because it was more important. It was because it was lost. I wasn't thinking about all the things I had, the nice things, the uh, computer that I had, nice as it is. wasn't thinking about uh, my wallet that I had with me. I wasn't thinking about... I was thinking about my phone that was lost. Well, we all have something that we've lost, don't we? Anybody lost Keys. (laughs) The frustration of that. Anybody lost uh, a wallet? Oh, goodness. You know, thinking about having to change all your credit card information. I don't know what it is, but we've we've lost these things. A phone, maybe, like I did. And we searched all over to find it. But, you know, those things are really just material possessions. Right? Nothing that I've ever seen is more heart-wrenching than seeing a parent who has lost their child. Many of us have seen on TV... Uh, uh, a parent pleading for the return of their child or pleading uh, for anyone that has any information to come forth and to help them to see their child return. It, it goes way beyond any mental understanding, the gripping, and I can feel it in you that are parents as well as those that, that aren't literal parents at this time. It is an all-consuming thing, and it doesn't let up until the child is returned safe and sound, you know the parable that we're talking about today speaks of this kind of emotion. Um, look with me today at the parable of the lost sheep. We're going to look at the parable of the lost sheep in the Book of Luke, chapter fifteen, and verses three through seven. I want to give you a little bit of background, though, um, about the setting and and the location. Remember, we've done this each week. I want to give you a little bit of background. So that we kind of know how to interpret and know how to understand what Jesus was saying in this parable. There were two groups of people in Luke chapter 15 that were surrounding Jesus. There were the tax collectors and sinners. The bad people, right? (laughs) Tax collectors and sinners. The IRS. Well, I don't know. They were actually, these tax collectors were way beyond anything we've known, uh, And uh, I will talk about one in a minute. And the sinners, right? And then there was another crowd. The religious crowd. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Who probably had this look on their face, you know, smug. Uh, Anyway, um, the Pharisees. So Jesus is hanging out with the first group. It's not making sense. The first group. He's hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners. And the Pharisees are muttering. I cannot believe Jesus would do it. You know, I don't know what they're doing, but mutter is the word. Everybody mutter out there for me. How do you mutter? You mutter. The Pharisees mutter. They mumble. They, they whatever other M word. They, they are very negative people. <laughs> Not the kind I'd want to hang out with. Though sometimes I find that attitude in me too much. These religious people were offended. Not just a little uptight they were offended that jesus would spend his time with tax collectors and sinners don't you know what kind of people they are jesus don't you know these filthy people jesus that you would hang out with these people disgusts me basically was their attitude they expected jesus to be more like them distant from sinners Distant and separated from sinners and uh, concerned with outward appearances. That's exactly how the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, uh, the, the attitude that they had. And this is what was going on when Jesus told this parable, the parable of the lost sheep. Now I want you, uh, to, as now that we understand the setting, to read with me in Luke chapter 15, verse 3 through 7. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. You see, Jesus in this parable is explaining that He didn't spend time with sinners because He liked them only. He liked them He liked the Pharisees and tax collectors. I mean, he liked the Pharisees and teachers of the law as well, but he liked sinners. But that's not the main reason why he spent time with them. He spent time with sinners because his heart was consumed with the lost being found and restored to safety in God's kingdom. He was consumed with the lost being found and being uh, restored to safety in God's kingdom. That's what consumed Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. A biblical example of Jesus being consumed with the lost being returned to Him, it actually happens to be a tax collector. It's seen later in the book of Luke. uh, in chapter 19. And it's about a man we've talked about a number of times. His name is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is 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 a, an, a perfect example of Jesus' heart. And let's look at it real quickly. Jesus is walking along the road on the way to Jericho. And he's walking through Jericho, actually. And he's walking there. And a man, a short man, it says named Zacchaeus, heard that Jesus was coming his way. And this man, Zacchaeus, wasn't able to deal with the crowds. Because remember, as we said in the first week, crowds pressed in on Jesus. Only a few devoted followers stuck with it. But crowds were around him all the time. And so Zacchaeus climbed up, (laughs) however high he could, in a tree. And he's sitting there, he's just looking for Jesus. Now, we've got to understand... I think you do, but let's understand, Zacchaeus had no friends. Zacchaeus was a hated man. Zacchaeus was a thief. Zacchaeus not only took the money uh, that was um, the tax that was owed, but he exorbitantly stole from people an excess amount of money and enriched himself through it, and people hated him because of it. He was an outcast. He was someone that no one would have wanted to be with. The Pharisees didn't want to be with him, but I don't even know how many sinners wanted to be with him. What an unlikely character for a man of God such as Jesus to interact with. But don't you love our Jesus? Jesus walking along the road. I don't know what exactly went through Jesus' mind, but I can imagine him thinking, hey, there he is. One of the most hated men. That's my man. (laughs) I'm going to love the hate right out of him. Praise the holy name of Jesus. So Jesus, um, uh, he said this. So he looks up in the tree. It's very interesting what Jesus says. He says, Zacchaeus, I must come to your house today. He didn't just say, "Uh, Zacchaeus, maybe we could hang sometime. You know, like we all say, let's hang sometime. Let's Let's hang out sometime. No, Jesus said, Zacchaeus, my heart is consumed with your lost soul being returned to safety in my kingdom. I must come to your house today. (laughs) Praise the name of Jesus. See, Jesus uh, found this lost man, Zacchaeus, and returned him to safety in God's kingdom. After Zacchaeus repented and turned from his sin, Jesus said this in Luke 19 and verse 10. And this accents the very parable of the lost sheep that we're talking about. Jesus said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. (laughs) That's what He's all about. Why is He concerned with the lost? Are they more important? No. They're more lost. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. They are the ones whose eternal destinies are at stake. Of course, God loves us. Just as the, the rich uh, or the, the faithful son in the parable of the, of the two sons and the lost son, they have everything. We have everything from the Lord. He delights in us, he, he loves us, but He is consumed. Why did Jesus seek and save the lost? This is the question that I believe we must answer today. This is why Jesus sought and saved the lost. Because the time was short. And hell was and is real. And Jesus spoke more of Gehenna. Hades. Translated as hell. Jesus spoke more of this than any person in the Bible. Why? Because he was a meanie? No. No. Because he was a lover. Because he loved his children. Who, and he loved people who were in the danger of the fires of hell. Jesus was not politically correct. He's correct. He is correct. The definition of correct is Jesus. And he's so correct in his love. Because he is the most loving being on the face of the earth. He told people how it was. So that he could condemn them? No. No. So that He could draw them to freedom. You see, Jesus knew better than anyone else the reality of heaven and hell and the fact that those who were not redeemed were destined, get this, destined for a godless eternity. An eternal torment. I'm not saying that for effect. Effect. I'm quoting to you the Word of God. It is God's desire that none should should um, perish. And that's what perishing really means when we get down to it. But that all should come to repentance. You know, knowing this truth gives me a vision for this church here at CFCF and what I want us to be about. My vision for CFCF is that we would always seek out to be Uh, to be with those who are not a part of God's kingdom yet and those who don't understand the free gift of salvation in Jesus. My vision for CFCF is that we would order our lives in such a way that people are not a project. They are a part of us. My vision for CFCF is that people belong to us and then they will believe in Christ as we share the truth That's what I'm saying today. And then their behavior will change. That people would belong. That we would be a people that say, Come as you are. Just don't stay as you are. Come as you are. But we have a way to walk in freedom with our God. I have a vision for CFCF that we would not be so busy with our lives and church activities that we don't have time for our neighbors, that we don't have time for our friends that we don't have time for our school or work associates or those who we come in contact with every day. I have a vision for us at CFCF, myself included, and I am convicted as anyone here in this place today, if you're wondering, (laughs) that we would think and act in a way that seeks out relationship with those who are lost and sees them return to God and return to a safe place in His kingdom. It is my vision for us that we would be spiritual, not spiritual thermometers that go up and down, up and down with the spiritual environment we're put in. But we would become spiritual thermostats that come into an environment and the love of Christ and the compassion of Christ literally turns the dial to righteousness. And you know what righteous, when people experience righteousness, they feel loved. They don't feel condemned. Condemned. Our beautiful Jesus, looking in the eyes of sinners, He exposed their sin to judge them? No. To say, come to safety in God's kingdom. Come to safety in God's kingdom. Jesus, our Lord, is so good. I have a vision that people who are lost would feel sought out in our city and be saved. Saved? What is that religious word? Saved from eternal torment in a Christless eternity and saved to the party of all parties in heaven with our Lord Jesus Christ for the rest of eternity. Jesus died on the cross that none would go to hell, but that all should come to repentance. God's love is that much, you know, being consumed with the loss, being returned to safety in God's kingdom is a call that my family and I take seriously. And I, I, I take it seriously and I'm continuing to take it seriously. We have a Bianchi family mission statement. Any of you that have been with us with our children in the mornings or at some point might have heard it, I'll read it to you. It goes like this. We are a family of love, honor, and purpose. We will love God, ourselves, and others. We will live our lives to honor Jesus. We are on mission to... In the Holy Spirit and with great joy. Jude oftentimes says love, so it's kind of morphed, but joy, love, peace. But we are with great joy. What is that mission? What is that mission? That the lost be returned and be found and be returned to safety in God's kingdom. That is our mission. We live, God has blessed us with a house here in Brighton. What a miracle! Uh, it is a miracle. that we were able to obtain a house able to buy a house in this city and we we we're in a very small street uh, with six other houses we pray regularly by name over our neighbors that they would come to know the love of jesus christ we pray regularly i ask our boys every morning who we praying for today Sometimes it'll be Annie Cade or, you know, us. And we do pray for for whoever, his friends or something. But they'll always come up with someone and and we'll pray for them to be saved. But, you know, prayer is not enough. Uh Uh-oh. Potential heresy there. No, prayer is not enough. We need to engage them in life. We need to say, we're here with you. We love you. Last week. Hey, I'm a busy guy. I fail. I'm not, I'm not condemning you, but I'm saying we make a point to party with our neighbors. <laughs> in impurity, no. Impurity, but to be with them in their graduations. We went to a graduation party a week ago, had a great time. Invite them to ours, our uh, parties, and, and just to be with them. What? If you've been to our neighborhood, it is diverse. And I love it. I love them. They're my neighbors. (laughs) Uh, And um, another thing (laughs) about that is that um, we have a young lady. She's 12 years old, she's our next door neighbor. She's beautiful and she lives with us practically. That's overstating it. But she's a wonderful young lady. She's with us hours a day. And she's learning what it looks like to love and to know Jesus with all of her heart. She's never going to be the same. I can't wait to see her graduate. I'll be weeping on the front row. So proud of this young lady. But she's getting discipled in our home. We take it seriously. Do we fail? A million times. A million times. There's so many times I feel that i fail. But He is not failing on our people. I want to challenge each of us today to consider the overarching goal. Each one of you to consider that overarching goal of your life. What is that goal for you? There are some good good options. (laughs) Um, Is it living a comfortable life? Is it being a success at your school or your workplace? Is it being a good person or desiring that your, your family, that your children are safe and secure? Those are not bad things. Not bad things at all. But I would suggest that we look again at the words of Jesus in Luke 15, 3-7 and see what Jesus defined as the proper approach to life. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me! (laughs) I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine persons who do not need to repent. What if every one of us here today became more consumed with the lost being found and returned to safety than with our own comforts in religious ways? What if every one of us sought out our neighbors and friends as well, as well, not just our neighbors and friends, as well as those the world considers irreligious, untouchable? What if we sought them out with the intensity of a person searching for a lost child? Oh, what would our city look like if we became more concerned with the lost being found and returned to safety in God's kingdom than with our own comfort and goals? I'm going to turn here at the very end to a man named William Booth. William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army, a radical band of people committed to this very goal of seeing people return to God's kingdom. And uh, William Booth... uh, uh, Wrote this in King Edward VII's autograph book. This was his quote. Your Majesty, some men's ambition is art. Some men's ambition is fame. Some men's ambition is gold. My ambition is the souls of men. Men and women. That was his day. (laughs) okay." Just so you understand. What probably motivated General Booth, as he was known, more than anything, uh, and and motivated to his ministry to the destitute and the poor and constantly preaching Christ so that people could be rescued, was a vision that he saw one day. When he was riding on a train, he saw a vision very clearly before him. And this vision rocked him for the rest of his life and made him one consumed with seeing The lost found and returned to safety in God's kingdom. I'm going to read this vision, an excerpt of it. It's eight minutes, just so you know, how long is he going to go? I'm going to read this to you. And what I want to challenge us to this afternoon or, or after this is to respond to God in prayer and ask him that he would make us. The kind of people that Jesus is talking about in the parable of the lost sheep. I don't know what you need to do. You can look at me. You can close your eyes. You can, you can do whatever. But I want to ask you to focus in. To not let the heat or anything else keep you back from hearing these words. This is William Booth as he's on a train. It's going to explain here. And the vision he received from God that I think is the most apt representation or the apt illustration of what the parable of the lost sheep is all about. This is the excerpt from A Vision of a Loss by William Booth. On one of my recent journeys, as I gazed from the coach window, I was led into a train of thought concerning the condition of the multitudes around me. They were living carelessly in the most open and shameless rebellion against God, without a thought for their eternal welfare. While my mind was thus engaged, I had a vision. I saw a dark and stormy ocean. In that ocean, I thought I saw myriads of poor human beings plunging and floating, shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning. And as they cursed and screamed, they rose and shrieked again. And then some sank to rise no more. And I saw out of this dark, angry ocean, a mighty rock that rose up with its summit towering high above the black clouds that overhung the stormy sea. And all around the base of this great rock, I saw a vast platform. Onto this platform, I saw with delight a number of the poor, struggling, drowning people continually climbing out of the angry ocean. And I saw that a few of those who were already safe on the platform were helping the poor people still in the angry waters to reach a place of safety. On looking more closely, I found a number of those who'd been rescued industriously working, scheming by ladders, ropes, boats, and other means more effective to deliver the poor strugglers out of the sea. Here and there, some actually jumped into the water regardless of the consequences in their passion to rescue the perishing. And I hardly know which gladdened me most, the sight of the poor drowning people climbing on the rocks or the devotion and self-sacrifice of those whose whole being was wrapped up in the effort for their deliverance. But only a very few of them seemed to make it their business. Only a very few of them seemed to make it their business to get the people out of the sea. What puzzled me most was the fact that though all of them had been rescued at one time or another from the ocean, nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. Anyway, it seemed the memory of its darkness and danger no longer troubled them at all. And what seemed equally strange and perplexing to me was that these people did not even seem to have a care, that is, any agonizing care about the poor perishing ones who were struggling and drowning right before their very eyes, many of whom were their husbands, wives, brothers, sisters, and even their own children. Now this astonishing unconcern could not have been the result of ignorance or lack of knowledge because they lived right there in full sight of it all and even talked about it sometimes. Many even went regularly to hear lectures and sermons in which the awful state of these poor drowning people was described. Many people spent their time in amusing themselves with growing flowers on the side of the rock. Others painted pieces of cloth or played music or dressed themselves up in different styles and walked around to be admired. Some occupied themselves chiefly in eating and drinking. Others were taken up with arguing about the poor drowning ones that had already been rescued. But the thing to me that seemed the most amazing was that those on the platform to whom He called, who heard His voice and felt they ought to obey it, who worshipped Him, Or who professed to do so were so taken up with their trades and professions, money saving, pleasures, families and circles, their religions and their arguments about it, and their preparation for going to the mainland that they did not listen to the cry that came from this wonderful being who had himself gone down into the sea. Anyway, if they heard it, they did not heed it, they did not care. And so the multitudes went on right before them, struggling and shrieking and drowning in the darkness. Some of the safe ones wanted him to come and stay with them and spend his time and strength in making them happier. Others wanted him to come and take away various doubts and misgivings they had concerning the truth of some letters he had written to them. Some wanted him to come and make them feel more secure on the rock, so secure that they would be quite sure they would never slip off into the ocean. So these people used to meet and get up as high on the rock as they could and looking towards the mainland where they thought the great being was, they would cry out, come to us, come and help us. And all the while, he was down by his spirit among the poor, struggling, drowning ones in the angry deep with his arms around them, trying to drag them out and looking up, oh, so longingly, but all in vain to those on the rock, crying to them with his voice, all hoarse from calling, come to me, come and help me. And then I understood it all. It was plain enough. The sea was the ocean of life. The sea of real, actual human existence. That lightning was the gleaming of piercing truth coming from Jehovah's throne. The thunder was the distant echoing of the wrath of God. Those multitudes of people shrieking, struggling, and agonizing in the stormy sea were the thousands and thousands of poor harlots and harlot makers, of drunkards and drunk makers, of thieves, liars, blasphemers, and ungodly people of every kindred, tongue, and nation. Oh, what a black sea it was. And oh, what multitudes of rich and poor, ignorant and educated were there. They were all so unlike in their outward circumstances and conditions, yet all alike in one thing, all of them sinners before God. All alike in one thing? No. All alike in two things. Not only the same in their wickedness, but unless rescued, the same in their sinking, sinking, down, down, down. Down to the same terrible doom. That mighty being who was calling to the saved from the midst of the angry waters was the Son of God, the same yesterday, today, and forever who is still struggling and interceding to save the dying multitudes about us from this terrible doom of damnation, and whose voice can be heard above the music, machinery, and noise of life, calling on the rescued to come and help him save the world. My friends in Christ, you are rescued from the waters. You are on the rock. He is in the dark sea calling on you to come and help Him. Will you go? Look for yourselves. The surging sea of life crowded with perishing multitudes rolls up to the very spot on which you stand. Leaving the vision, I now come to speak of the fact, a fact that is as real as the Bible, as real as the Christ who hung upon the cross, as real as the judgment day will be, and as real as heaven and hell that will follow. Look... Don't be deceived by appearances. Men and things are not what they seem. All who are not on the rock are in the sea. Look at them from the standpoint of the great white throne. And what a sight you have. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, through His Spirit, in the midst of this dying multitude, is struggling to save them. And He is calling on you to jump into the sea, to go right away to His side and to help Him in the holy strife. Will you jump? That is, will you go to His feet and place yourself absolutely at His disposal? So will you who still linger on the bank thinking and singing and praying about the poor perishing souls lay aside your shame, your pride, your cares about other people's opinions, your love of ease and all the selfish loves that have kept you back for so long and rush to the rescue of the multitudes of dying men and women? Does the surging sea look dark and dangerous? unquestionably it is so. There is no doubt that the leap for you, as for everyone who takes it, means difficulty and scorn and suffering. For you, it may mean more than this. It may mean death. He who beckons you from the sea, however, knows what it will mean, and knowing he still calls to you and bids you to come. You must do it. You cannot hold back. You have enjoyed yourself in Christianity long enough. You have had pleasant feelings, pleasant songs, pleasant meetings, pleasant prospects. There has been much of human happiness, much clapping of hands and shouting of praises, very much of heaven on earth. Now then go to God and tell him you are prepared as much as necessary to turn your back upon it all. And that you are willing to spend the rest of your day struggling in the midst of these perishing multitudes, whatever it may cost you. You must do it with the light that is now broken in upon your mind and the call that is now sounding in your ears. And beckoning beckoning hands that are before your eyes, you have no alternative. To go down among the perishing crowds is your duty. Your happiness from now on will consist in sharing their misery, your ease in sharing their pain, your crown in helping them bear their cross, and your heaven in going into the very jaws of hell to rescue them. Now what will you do? As the band comes up and plays, I want us... I don't have a formula. I pretty much spent my formula right here. I want us to call out to God. I want us to ask God to mark us as a people who are consumed with the lost being found and return to safety in God's kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we confess our desperate need for You today. We confess that you are good. I don't know what you need to do today, but I want you, if it's to come forward, if it's to kneel by your chair, if it's to stand, if it's to sit, I don't know. But I want you to call out to God, to ask God to make you and to make us a people that make Boston a hard place for people to go to hell from. Let it be, Jesus. Let it be.